History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. Thank you for joining me on this long, detailed journey through the world of the pharaohs. May the next 100 episodes be even better. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 100, Celebration. Today we pass a milestone, an anniversary indeed. You see, it is the year of Amunhotep III's first Sed festival, the grand celebration which took place after 30 years on the throne. We're going all out, exploring every known and some unknown elements of this particular event. Thanks to some comprehensive records, I have a lot to say about it. The writing of this episode was sponsored by Laura Holmes and her generous donation. Thank you Laura for your support. May Aten, who dazzles the eye and shines on the whole world, give you life. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Today's story will be told through the eyes of one man in particular. He attended the said festival of Amunhotep and even participated in it as part of the royal entourage. His name was Keruef, and from his tomb we can see many of the elements which transpired in Amunhotep III's first said festival. We are unusually well informed about this particular celebration. Out of all the kings who performed a said fest, Amunhotep is one of three, just three, to leave detailed, comprehensive records of the event. The first was Neusere of Dynasty V, around 2350 BCE. So Amunhotep, living around 1370, was the first king in a thousand years to leave a surviving record of his jubilee. As you can imagine, this kind of scarcity in documents is a bit of a problem. Although we have a good snapshot of what Amunhotep did, we are still missing a lot of material. Reconstructing the said festival is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle with 40% of the pieces missing, at least. Essentially, we have the general picture, but some of the details, in particular the symbolism and the exact order of events, are left in the dark. In this episode, I am presenting a rough reconstruction, told mainly through the eyes of our star witness, Keruef. It's not exact, but it's based on what he showed us. So with that, let's join Keruef in the crowd and watch as a pharaoh of Egypt, perhaps the most grandiose and wealthy of all pharaohs, performs the sacred rites of rejuvenation.
The year was approximately 1370 BCE, regnal year 30 under the majesty of Amunhotep III, king of Egypt. One morning, just before dawn, a man named Keruef arrived at the palace of the pharaoh. The night was still dark, and the stars glittered brightly. Torches illuminated Keruef's path as he approached the grand buildings of the royal domicile. He was on the west bank of Thebes, at a complex called Per Hai, or the House of Rejoicing. Today, we know this as the Palace of Malkata, the Theban residence of Amunhotep III. We haven't explored Malkata yet in the podcast, mainly because Year 30 is the first time that it really becomes notable. I'll explore the palace in great detail in a future episode. Suffice to say, Malkata, or Per Hai, was a sprawling complex of apartments, storerooms, courtyards, and halls. It was a functioning palace, half residence, half government center. It had shrines to gods and space for congregations. It also had a lake, an artificial pool near the edge of the Nile River. That lake will feature a bit later on. For now, we'll focus on the inner part of the palace. Kerouf is hurrying through columned halls and courtyards to the place where the said festival would begin. Kerouf bustled through the palace. He was dressed in his finest clothing, bleached white robes, golden jewellery, and a broad collar of carnelian and gold beads. He was the embodiment of sartorial elegance in the decadent glamour of Amunhotep's reign. Keruef held a prominent role in the government. He was the steward, or Imira Peru, overseer of the houses, of none other than Queen T. Keruef was the manager of T's estate. He was responsible for the workers, buildings, and produce that served her and were made on her lands. Much of that produce was probably making its way to the palace of Malkata as well, to be used in the forthcoming celebrations. But Keruef was not worrying about that. He was here to participate in the rituals. As Keruef hurried into the palace, the said festival was in its preliminary stages. The king and queen in their private chambers were getting ready. Keruef would not see this particular part, so we'll leave him outside and quietly slip inside the apartments to where the pharaoh was preparing. Within the inner rooms, amid the glow of candles, Amunhotep donned the clothing of his office. First his kilt and sandals and all that, the normal stuff. Then he put on the ceremonial attire. In the context of the said festival, Pharaoh's costume included three pieces of regalia. First, Amunhotep donned a white robe made of linen. This was the said robe a religious piece associated with the king in his role as high priest. We're not exactly sure what the said robe represents. Originally, scholars thought it was related to the Shroud of Osiris, but this is not a popular theory today. The said robe does appear in contexts outside of the said festival. It appears at the royal coronation, and occasionally priests acting on the king's behalf will wear it. So it seems most likely to be a robe of priestly office. Perhaps the said robe is the costume of the high priest. The said robe was a single piece of cloth, bleached as white as possible. It was wrapped around the body and held together over the chest. Wearing this robe, probably gleaming in the candlelight, Amunhotep then moved on to his second item of ceremonial clothing. This was his crown. 
In the context of the said festival, Amunhotep wore the double crown, the combination of red and white crowns which marked the unity of Egypt's two lands. The red crown, flat cap with tall point at the rear, sat on his head, while the white crown, shaped like a bowling pin, nestled within it. These were the officers of his monarchical power, and together with the said robe, they marked Amunhotep as the dual king, the supreme leader of the land, its territories, and its cults. Finally, the king took up his accessories. These were the famous crook and flail, the twin scepters of royal authority. Clutching one in each hand, his arms poking through the armholes of the said robe, the king stepped out of his dressing chambers and into the first hall. When the king emerged, a number of high-ranking men stepped forward. These were his ceremonial entourage, a privileged group of courtiers permitted to attend Pharaoh personally and participate in his celebrations. They included some prestigious names, like the vizier, the priests, and the stewards. Collectively, these high-ranking men would be Amunhotep's companions and guardians, and they would assist in the rituals to come. Among this group, Keruweth stood proud, and he tells us about his contributions in great detail. So from here on, we can observe the said festival through the events that Keruweth himself witnessed. Let's begin. Keruweth watched as the pharaoh emerged from his chambers and stood before the crowd. Was he dazzled by this radiant symbol of authority, or was he acutely aware of the mundane humanity of this figure? Amunhotep, slightly overweight, perhaps weakened by a recent illness, was not exactly in the prime of life anymore. If Keruweth was a cynical man, he might have seen only mortality. But if he was a true believer, he would have seen the utmost splendour of Egypt's divine ruler. The pharaoh, along with Queen T, stepped over to a raised dais. This dais was interesting, for it was divided into two parts. It had two thrones, one at each end, and over each throne there was an ornate but separate canopy. These two thrones represented the kingdoms of southern and northern, or upper and lower Egypt. They were the thrones of the two lands, and they would be the centrepiece of the first phase. Amunhotep did not immediately ascend to his thrones. Instead, he reached out as an attendant scurried forward with a flaming torch. You see, before he could sit, Amunhotep had a special ritual to enact. At the very start of the Jubilee, Pharaoh performed a rite called Illuminating the Thrones. This seems to have involved opening the canopies of the dais, or perhaps shrines, and throwing light onto the two seats. The idea seems to be that the thrones stayed in darkness and required illumination by the pharaoh before he could take up his seat and his power. To enact this involved elaborate ceremony. Amunhotep stepped forward. Queen T was beside him. The king held the flaming torch in one hand and he extended this towards the dais. The flickering fire shone bright over the thrones, and the king passed his torch back and forth between the canopies. As he did this, a priest recited a formula. Quote, Illuminating the baldachin or canopy of the king in the jubilee festival at daybreak. Words spoken by the lector priest who says, 
O Sem priest, let a flame be brought and given to the king. O king, take a light from this torch which illuminates the baldachin. The following words must be spoken four times. Say, O king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re, the son of Re, Amun Hotep. O Horus, the son of Re, brings his eye. Horus makes stable his eye. End quote. Horus brings the eye, the flame of the torch, which illuminates the thrones of the two lands. This seems to be arcane ritual, hearkening back to some of the oldest myths in the royal lineage. If Horus is the pharaoh, and the flame is his eye, then we are dealing with a ritual emerging out of the most ancient days. The beginning of the said festival was an event steeped in the mysteries of archaic Egypt. Watching this event, our man Kerouef and his companions gathered around the pharaoh. They watched as Amunhotep waved the torch before the thrones, and then ascended to his lofty seat. With Queen T beside him, the pharaoh of Egypt settled down into one of his thrones. His said robe gleamed in the pre-dawn lights, his regalia glittered from the torches, and the eyes of Pharaoh, the eyes of Horus, gazed out on a congregation which had gathered to celebrate him. Kerouef and his colleagues, the honoured officials, now arrayed themselves into a line. They formed a procession, a parade of men in the finery of high nobility. At the head of the group, one man carried a tall pole with a standard atop it. This man's name was Ka-em-hat, and he may have carried the symbol of Wep-wa-wet. Wep-wa-wet, the opener of the ways, was a jackal god, often associated with Anubis. In the context of festivals, Wep-wa-wet was the master of ceremonies, leading or opening the way so that the procession could begin. The standard of Wep-wa-wet, a jackal atop a tall pole, was carried at the head of the group. It was Wep-wa-wet who would lead this next phase. The procession began in the halls of the palace, but soon left the confines of the building and headed out into open spaces. Kerouef and his fellows moved in a solemn parade. We see them and the divine standards depicted in his tomb, accompanied by captions describing the event. Quote, The gods who are in the jubilee who are in his majesty's retinue, Web Wawet of Upper Egypt, leader of the two lands, gives all life and dominion, all health and all joy like Ray forever. He is carried by the first prophet. Web Wawet of Lower Egypt is carried by the second prophet. The Neken of the king is carried by the third prophet. End quote. If this seems confusing, don't worry, it is. This is all very formal, very ceremonial, and there is a lot of complicated symbolism going on in the background. The two Wep Wawets, for instance, one for north and one for south, do not seem to be equals. Wep Wawet of the south, of Upper Egypt, is treated as the leader, and that may have something to do with the ancient memory of Upper or Southern Egypt being the leading force at the dawn of the kingdom. If Upper Egyptian kings like Namer or Horus Aha had unified the land by force more than 1500 years ago, it would make sense that their Wep Wawet was treated as the greater being. Also, there is a reference to the Neken of the king. Now this one is a bit weird, because it seems to refer to the king's placenta. This is the nutrient-slash-oxygen sac which fed and supported him in his mother's womb. 
In the 18th dynasty, the symbol of the placenta was divine, a physical manifestation of the bond between Pharaoh and the world of the gods who fashioned him. If we think back to episode 90, we might remember that Amun-Hotep's mother claimed to have been impregnated by the great god Amun himself. In that story, Queen Mut Emwia took on the cosmic role of the goddess Hathor or Mut. These were the eternal mother figures. Mut Emwia's placenta, which came from her body and fed her young child Amun-Hotep, would be, in this story, a manifestation of the god's will. So there's a lot of birth and conception symbolism going on in this part. Wep-Wawet of Upper Egypt was the symbol for the land which birthed the Egyptian kingdom, and the placenta of the king was the icon of the divine birth of Pharaoh himself. In a way, this part of the ceremony is a beginning in the literal and the conceptual sense. The event itself is starting, but all of the iconography harkens back to birth, either the birth of the pharaoh, or the birth of the kingdom itself. As if that wasn't enough, the whole concept is hammered home with one great flourish. In the paintings of Kerouef's tomb, we see Amunhotep sitting on his throne while the procession goes forth. Seated right behind the king is none other than the goddess Hathor. The mother supreme, Hathor the Great, sits behind Amunhotep, in a place formerly occupied by his own mother, Queen Mut-em-Wea. Mut-em-Wea was dead by now, so it seems that she appears in her divine form, watching over the procession. In other words, Hathor the Great Mother watches over the rebirth of Amun-Hotep's authority. Damn, I love this stuff. With the procession starting and the king appearing in public, the said festival was now underway. Kerouef, marching in his procession, described this in his tomb. Clearly, he was quite overwhelmed by the whole affair. Quote, Year 30, month 2 of the Peret season, day 27. The glorious appearance of the king at the great double doors in his palace of the House of Rejoicing, ushering in the officials. The king's companions, Semeru Nesut, the chamberlain, Emi Kanet, the men of the gateway, Su Ruit, the king's acquaintances, Reku Nesut, the crew of the divine bark, Teru, the men of the palace, Kepru Ak, and the royal dignitaries went forth. End quote. Such a congregation involving so many officials must have been very large. Living in a time of great wealth, Amunhotep III was probably surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds, of courtiers, each with their own place in the hierarchy. While some, like the Semeru companions, were close to the king, part of his personal entourage, others, like the Reku acquaintances, were much more distant. But all of them were members, participants, in the panoply of the celebration. So the display of Pharaoh's authority and wealth was shaping up to be a truly dazzling affair. Keruef and his companions marched slowly in the procession. Around them, the pomp and display was just beginning. Now a big part of this would have been music, singers and musicians raising a great cacophony on behalf of their pharaoh. With sistrum rattles, the musicians awoke spirits and gods. With drums and clappers, they pounded a rhythm for the procession. With harps and lutes, they added melody, accompanying the hymns and recitals for the glory and majesty of the king. 
Above it all, the shrill sound of trumpets proclaimed to all and sundry. The pharaoh was arrived, the ceremony was underway. The celebratory music rang out over the proceedings as the courtiers made their way in procession, and the king watched all from his throne. Amunhotep, accompanied by Queen T, was resplendent in his finery, and from their shaded dais the great rulers were surely a majestic sight. Kerouf, marching along, must have been impressed. We now move to phase two. The ceremony was formally underway, and the celebrations could begin in earnest. This would involve a great deal of giving. Pharaoh would lavish gold upon his loyal subjects, and there would also be a banquet, along with two displays by some very intriguing groups. All of that follows in part two, after the musical break. In 1370 BCE, the great Sed festival of Amunhotep III was underway. The king had begun proceedings by donning his regalia, a bleached white robe called the Sed robe. He also wore the double crown of the two lands and the crook and flail of the ruler. Then a procession of courtiers had emerged from the palace to parade around the court. Solemn proceedings were livened with music, and the king and queen watched from a shaded dais, sitting on their thrones. Keruef, our eyes for this event, now recorded the second phase of the celebrations. This was, in his depiction, one of the greatest moments of his life. The second phase involved the pharaoh rewarding Keruef and his colleagues for their loyal service in the government. In other words, it was time for Amunhotep to distribute gifts. Quote, Rewards were made by the pharaoh, the gold of praise, and ducks and fish made of gold. The lucky ones received ribbons of green linen, each person being made to stand according to his rank. End quote. In the paintings which go along with this, we see Keruef receiving his rewards. He stands tall, arms raised, while servants of the king placed golden collars around his neck. This collar is called the Gold of Honour, a relatively recent addition to royal society. The Gold of Honour was a military reward, originally, a gift given to high-ranking leaders of soldiers and those who had served well in warfare. Well, the days of war were currently a thing of the past, so Amunhotep III extended these gifts of gold to many of his servants who had nothing to do with the military. So Keruef stepped forward before the throne of Pharaoh and was given gold of honour. When he stepped back, he wore a glittering yellow collar, an emblem of Pharaoh's favour. It was a great moment in his life, and Keruef made it the centrepiece of his tomb's decoration. Quote, Rewarding the royal scribe, the steward of the great royal wife, Keruef, hand of the king. End quote. We know of at least 33 individuals given these honours by the pharaoh. None of them are associated with the army, they are all civil officials. So, what's going on here? Well, according to Susanna Binder, the current authority on the gold of honour, 
The priorities of the royal household were now quite different from the militaristic ambitions of previous generations. From the warrior pharaohs like Thutmose III and Amunhotep II, times had changed. Now, Binder says, quote, The success of Pharaoh depended on the reliability of the country's internal management, the accumulation and redistribution of resources and produce. The king's awareness of this is represented in the types of officials attested with the gold of honour. Essentially, Amunhotep III lived in a different world from his ancestors. Military conquest and expansion was in the past. Now, it was far more important to manage the wealth than to simply acquire it. So the officials whom he rewarded were not the generals leading armies, but the scribes and managers leading institutions. In other words, Amunhotep III treated the bureaucrats of his empire as the key to its current success. In this age of peace and diplomacy rather than warfare, that was a very logical position to take. So the pharaoh dispensed the gold of honour to his valued servants. Men all throughout the court received these great rewards and considered them among the highest achievements of their careers. The pharaoh dispensed his gold of honour and many officials were rewarded for their years of service. The assembly of men clad in their pristine robes and glittering with gold were now satisfied. It was time for them to give back. The next event is quite interesting. It involves a large number of young women coming forth on behalf of the nobility. These girls, whom Kerouf recorded in his tomb, are described as the children of the great ones who have come to perform the jubilee ceremonies. They are all girls, at least in the tomb scenes, and they may be the daughters of the courtiers who were just rewarded. Alternatively, they are the daughters of foreign royalty who lived in Egypt as part of the imperial system. These girls may have been Eastern or Nubian, but they're generally depicted as Egyptians. Either way, they seem to be part of a ceremony of offering to the pharaoh. The girls came forward in pairs, each holding a vessel or flask. They were clad in gowns which flared out around the feet. Large collars adorned their shoulders, and they wore strange caps of some sort. On the side of their heads, a long lock of hair draped down. This signifies for us their youth. These girls might be quite young, on the cusp of womanhood. If so, you have to wonder exactly what is happening here. Quote, Ushering in the children of the Great Ones, who have come bearing ewers of gold and libation flasks of electrum in their hands. They come in order to perform jubilee ceremonies. They stand at the steps of the throne in front of the dais in the king's presence. End quote. You might be tempted to assume that there is some kind of presentation of the girls themselves, that they're being paraded in front of Pharaoh for his delectation. But nothing in the text or images establishes that, and we have to be extremely careful not to let old ideas of the sexualized Orient slip into our thinking. In fact, this all seems very ritualistic. The girls wear identical costumes and carry vessels for pouring libations, which is an act of purification before the pharaoh's throne. The captions beneath them say, quote, Making purification four times. 
Pure are your ewers of gold and your libation flasks of electrum. The daughter, she gives to you, the pharaoh, cool water. O sovereign, life, prosperity, and health, you shall henceforth continue to exist. End quote. It seems that the daughters of nobility or foreign rulers were paraded in front of the pharaoh to perform an act of purifying the ground, pouring water upon the soil in order to cleanse it. Since they are described as the daughters of the great ones, it seems as though the powerful of Egypt, or perhaps foreign lands, were giving their service symbolically through the medium of their daughters. This is a strange but fascinating little section of the said festival of Amunhotep. We've now had one event of giving by the pharaoh, and one giving to the pharaoh. Officials were rewarded by the king, and then their daughters purified, or perhaps were offered to Amunhotep in return. It all seems very reciprocal, and even though we are talking about the said festival as a celebration of the king, there is a strong element of exchange going on here. I'll come back to that at the end when I summarise the whole thing, but suffice to say that there is a larger relationship between the ruler and the ruled than you might normally assume from a pharaoh. Anyways, as the officials were rewarded and the daughters offered libations, a group of bystanders watched the proceedings. They were standing in chariots, a military assembly clad in their finery. Many of them were Egyptian, the nobility of the provincial classes, who had come to Thebes for the celebration. But among them, there were also a number of foreigners. We know from a later reference that among the various people who attended Amunhotep's jubilee, there were a large number of foreign representatives as well. They came from at least three places, the chiefdoms of Nubia to the south, the kingdom of Mitanni in Syria, and the kingdom of Babylon in southern Iraq. Among them, there may also have been representatives of principalities, tributaries from the land of Canaan. These foreigners came in deference and recognition of the pharaoh's majesty. The Nubians and Canaanites were there as imperial subjects, people whose lands fell under Amunhotep's military reach. The Mitanni and Babylonians, though, they were there as allies. We haven't talked about the Babylonians yet in the podcast, but they're out there, and at the moment they are communicating with Amunhotep. We'll meet them in a future episode. For now, let's get back to Kerouef. Kerouef watched as the charioteers of Mitanni and Babylon assembled behind the Egyptian nobles. The Nubian chieftains, distinctive feathers in their hair, stood in another group. The Canaanites, with their headbands and long beards, were impressive in colourful robes. It was a gathering of the great and powerful from distant lands, come to acknowledge the pharaoh's suzerainty. Pharaoh himself did not acknowledge the foreigners. He was, of course, master of the whole world, the dazzling Horus whose splendour shone down on every land and illuminated the darkest corners of the earth with Egyptian superiority. All lands, no matter how distant or powerful, were submissive to him. As he celebrated the Jubilee, Pharaoh took no notice of the foreign representatives. That would come back to haunt him. The gold of honour was given, the libations of the daughters was received. The subservience of foreign lands was assured, and now it was time for Pharaoh to give again. At this stage of the proceedings, Amunhotep took care of a basic human need. He gave everyone a meal. 
A large banquet was set up for the elite attendants. Nobles, officials, and foreigners came together to dine in the court of Pharaoh. It was a grand feast. Hundreds of oxen were brought out for slaughter and cooking. Ducks and fowl were served hot and ready. Bread and beer in vast quantities were consumed. And all kinds of wine from Pharaoh's estates was brought for the satisfaction of the court. How do we know all this? Well, Kerouef tells us about the banquet, but more importantly, archaeological work at the Palace of Thebes has revealed hundreds, literally hundreds, of jar labels. These labels were attached to containers of food, and they recorded the contents and the dates in which they arrived. For most years, there are just three or four labels at the palace. For regnal year 30, there are several hundred. The vast collection of pottery traces contained beer, wine, meats, oils, honey, and animal fats. Clearly, this was a feast to remember. So the attendees and the pharaoh enjoyed a repast, breaking up the long day with a good solid meal. As the sun, or Aten, shone down upon them, they enjoyed the happy fuzz of wine, beer, and a public celebration of their collective magnificence. Together, pharaoh and guests basked in the glory of the Egyptian kingdom. We now move to phase three, which will be a far more mysterious and arcane set of rituals. We are moving from the public space to the private, as the pharaoh and his selected servants perform a set of ancient and deeply symbolic acts. We are entering archaic territory, the rites and rituals of the ancestors themselves. That's phase three, after the break. Public ceremonies, honouring, giving, receiving, were done. It was time for some private events, some mystery and arcana. The third phase of the said festival was ready to begin. It would be a time of ancient and fascinating rituals. To begin with, the pharaoh, Queen T, and their close companions left the great banquet and boarded an ornate wooden boat. This boat, or bark, was called the night bark. It was a symbol of the sun god, and it would be the vehicle for the next ritual. The night bark was probably set up on the artificial lake next to the Malkata palace. We know that this lake existed, and it was connected to the Nile by a channel. For this next section of the ceremony, the pharaoh, queen, and high servants were taking a religious joyride. We can only assume that this occurred at night. First, Amunhotep and T ascended to the night bark. An attendant stood behind them as a teloman. In front, Keruef and four of his colleagues joined the royal couple as the companions, or semeru, of Horus. They included Keruef, one of the viziers, and three other men for a total of five companions. As before, they held tall standards or emblems of the gods. They were the solemn servants of the divine beings. Quote, beginning the journey by his majesty at the time of the high Nile, in order to transport the gods of the jubilee by water, making the procession of those beings of pay in the evening bark and the morning bark. End quote. There are two important points here. 
One, the ceremony is said to have taken place at the time of the High Nile, i.e. when the river was in the height of the inundation. But the dates of the said festival do not line up with the annual flood. According to the other inscriptions, the festival began in the third month of Peret. This was at least 12 weeks too early for the High Inundation. So we have to assume the festival was meant to take place, normally, at the inundation, but for some reason did not on this occasion. Secondly, the text makes reference to the beings of Pei. Pei is a town, an incredibly ancient town. It is located in the delta and seems to have been the location of an archaic pre-dynastic shrine. The shrine of Pei was associated with Horus, specifically with the birth of Horus. It was said that Horus was born at Pei, amidst the reeds on an island in the marshes. So the town of Pei was quite important, both to the great god and to the pharaoh who was his avatar. The living Horus Amunhotep, his great wife T, and his elite servants like Kerouef now sailed on the night bark across the lake of Malkata. Now something quite interesting happened here. On the edge of the lake, Amunhotep and T's children were brought out in a procession. The princesses of the realm assembled together, four of them standing in two pairs. Above them, we get Kerouef's description. Quote, the royal children who love the king, and who play with Sistra in their hands, together with the chantresses of Amun, every one of them singing for Horus. The song of music which they utter, music for the lords of the jubilee. Setting the rhythm, illuminating, music for the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the lord of the two lands, Neb Ma'at Re given life as he takes his place in the night bark. Adoration like Ray forever. End quote. The princesses of the realm and professional singers or chantresses from the great temples gave adoration to the king. Their music floated through the night air across the water. Pharaoh, in his bark, listened as his daughters sang to his name. Amunhotep and T stood tall and solemn as the boat glided across the lake. They and the officials in the front went northward, heading towards an area set aside for the ceremonies. Soon they disembarked and came to a tent. It was late, time to sleep. On the northern edge of the lake, the next phase of the ritual would begin. First, it was time for a rest. According to the texts, the next event took place at dawn. Before the sun rose, Pharaoh emerged from his tent, and the next mystery rite began. Quote, Towing the gods' statues, and causing them to proceed to their stations. Making for the statues the opening of the mouth ritual. Then, the sacrificing of long and short-horned cattle, a thousand of them, to Amun-Hotep III, for whom Amun-Re and all the gods decreed many jubilees. He is given life like Ray forever. End quote. To start the day, a mass sacrifice of cattle was needed. This would be both a great offering and a part of the next banquet later in the day. As the pharaoh watched, a thousand head of cattle were butchered for his honour. 
Now, with the second day about to begin, it was time for a truly arcane ritual. This is an event that is still not fully understood, although we may have the general picture. It is called the Raising of the Jed Pillar, and it has something to do with Osiris. Amunhotep approached a wooden log, the Jed, which was lying flat on the ground. Ropes were tied around one end, and Amunhotep took hold of these. He began to pull, straining his muscles to lift the log from his rest and raise it to a standing position. To help him, attendants guided the pillar as it rose. Watching, our man Kerouf described the scene. Quote, Erecting the Jed Pillar by the king himself, so that he may achieve given life like Rey forever and ever. The younger god, Neb Ma'at Rey, the son of Rey, Amunhotep, the ruler of Thebes, has magnified this achievement. The protection of all life, all stability and dominion are around him like Rey forever. End quote. All life, stability, dominion. Ankh, Jedi, Was. Three symbols of incredible power are being invoked here. The most important, of course, is Jed, whose core meaning is to endure or to last. We're not sure what the origin of the Jed pillar is exactly. It could be a prehistoric totem, the central symbol of a tribe or a community. Or it could be a pillar which supported the shrine of a god. Once upon a time, it may have been an independent deity or symbol, but eventually it became closely associated with Osiris. Amunhotep did not raise the Jed pillar alone. The ceremony was visible to the assembled royalty, singers and priests, attendants and high-ranking officials. They all appear in the background of Kerouf's tomb scenes, and are given captions to note their presence. Of course, the most important or prominent ones were Queen T and the royal daughter. T stands behind Amunhotep as he raises the pillar. Above, their daughters bow before the father, and give praise for his great deed. Quote, The king's children who extol the august Jed pillar. To you, divine Ka, the sistra. To your kindly face, the Menart necklaces. As you arise, august Jed pillar. End quote. The women, young and old, gathered to celebrate the raising of Osiris's totem. Now the text mentions a type of necklace called a menat. The menat necklace is quite interesting. It's a flat piece of metal, bronze, attached to a string of beads. We call it a necklace, but it also appears as an item held in the hand. In this context, the menat was probably used as a kind of instrument, making a rattling sound to awaken the gods and add music to the proceedings. Amazingly, we actually have intact menat necklaces, which may have been used in this very festival. At the Malkata Palace in Thebes, archaeologists discovered three menat necklaces buried in a cloth bag. They were discovered in an ancient house on the Malkata grounds, and we have to wonder if these were, once, the treasured possessions of a woman who participated in these rituals. If so, the Menat are one of our few tangible connections to this ancient ritual. You can see the Menat on the podcast website, or in the episode logo. It is quite a fascinating piece. The ceremony of raising the Jed Pillar was witnessed by a privileged few. In the painted scene that Kerouf left, we see the king and queen, their four daughters, and a number of servants who helped to raise the pillar. 
Around these few who occupy the most visible spots, followers attend as well. We see a collection of young women, perhaps those daughters of the great ones who showed up earlier. We also see nobility of the court, dressed as the companions of Pharaoh and attendants of the lord of the two lands, who are in the following of the younger god. They serve the mighty sovereign. Basically, the privileged elite of the land were assembled to watch as the Pharaoh, life, prosperity and health, raised up the totem of Osiris and renewed the stability of the land at the dawn of a new day. Finally, to round out this particular scene, our man Kerouf is shown leading a pair of priests into the picture, and he is accompanied by a caption describing his virtues. Quote, True scribe of the king, beloved of him, excellent confidant of the lord of the two lands, and steward of the great royal wife T, may she live. Kerouf, one who is true of voice. End quote. The Jed pillar was raised, and the honoured guests celebrated. In the next scene, after Amunhotep has raised the Jed pillar, we see the monument once again. This time, the Jed stands within a shrine, with a canopy overhead. It looks different. Where it used to be a simple log with flat lines at the top, the Jed has now become a figure of Osiris himself. But it's a weird one. The Jed pillar looks like Osiris from the feet to the shoulders. He is wrapped in his mummy shroud, his arms stick out, and he holds the crook and flail of kingship. At the very top, he wears his plumed crown, the Atef crown. But Osiris's face is not there. Instead, the Jed pillar replaces his head. The pillar has eyes, those famous Horus-style eyes which you see in a lot of symbolism, and in the podcast logo. But it has no face, just a wooden pillar with flat lines at the top and two painted eyes. It looks interesting. In this scene, Amunhotep stands before the shrine in which the Jed pillar is erect. He holds forth one hand and holds an Ankh symbol in the other. Before the king, a banquet table is piled high with offerings of bread, beer, wine, vegetables, and duck. Two cows have been slaughtered for the gods, and jars of oil and ointment complete the offering. Essentially, Amunhotep gives the Jed pillar, Osiris, his worship. In exchange, Amunhotep receives blessings. Quote, Erecting the Jed pillar by the king himself at the dawn of the Jubilee. Making an offering of bread and beer, all sorts of good and pure produce. Giving a great offering, consisting of long and short-horned cattle, and every sort of good and pure produce, given to Osiris, the Lord of Eternity. The king did this for his father Osiris, the elder god, that he might give all life, all stability, all dominion, all health, all joy, and all provisions that are required, just like his father Horus. End quote. The relationship between Pharaoh and Osiris is never one way. The king on earth gives, and the king in the underworld reciprocates. As Amunhotep gives great offerings, so Osiris would bless Amunhotep with jubilees in abundance and health and prosperity for all his long days. In many ways, the erection and worship of the Jed pillar was the cornerstone of this whole affair. It re-established the pharaoh's reign and reinforced it so that it would endure for another generation. So the king gave beer, bread, meat and produce to his father Osiris. Osiris, the once and eternal king of Egypt, was restored in splendour. 
the said festival was now at its most magical and arcane. Immediately below the Jed Pella scenes is a very curious event. It seems that as the pharaoh raised the great pillar of Osiris, a sort of battle was occurring nearby. What was this battle? Well, we're not sure, but it seems to have involved two groups of priests, and it was called the Battle of Pei and Dep. Earlier in the story, when Amunhotep was sailing his boat in the night bark, we heard tell of the beings of Pei. Pei, as I said, is a town, a town in the Delta. But it's an interesting town, because it was actually two towns, a binary settlement in one location. This town was divided into two parts. One was called Pei, and the other was Dep. Pei and Dep were the two halves of an ancient town called Buto. This place was seriously old, prehistoric, pre-dynastic old. It's one of the oldest towns in Egypt that we know of, and it may have been one of the centres of northern culture before the unification. Whatever Buto's exact significance, its two suburbs, Pei and Dep, seem to have become rather mythologized. As Amunhotep raised the Jed Pillar, the symbol of great Osiris, two groups of priests engaged themselves in a ritualized battle. They fought, struggled, scrapped, and tussled. In the painted scenes, we see them grappling with one another, while hieroglyphs above record what is happening. Unlike the other scenes from the festival, which have lengthy paragraphs, these ones read more like the sound effects from a comic book. Above one pair, we see glyphs saying, hit, or punch. Another one says, boxing, or hit, hit. Two men, the leading priests of their groups, are described as, quote, having no opponent. Again, hit, 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 pow, biff, bam, zonks. It's all very silly, and as this battle rages, I will let a classic TV show provide the ambiance. To the free, my rascally restaurant! You get the point. So the priests struggled in ritualized combat, but we have to ask ourselves, what were they fighting for? Well, the answer to this is in the hieroglyphs, sort of. Above the battle, a short caption gives us a hint at what is going on. The longest sentence of the whole scene simply says, quote, Boxing, a hit. Horus, appearing in truth, has prevailed. End quote. Horus appearing in truth, or Horus Ka-em-ma'at, is the Horus name of Amunhotep III. So the battle is one being fought by the warriors of Horus against, who else? Their eternal rivals. The battle rages between Horus and Seth. Now Seth is not mentioned here specifically. To represent him at the said festival in the presence of the Osiris pillar would be quite inappropriate. But we, and anyone viewing the paintings, can easily read between the lines. This is the struggle of Horus and Seth, reenacted in a sacred drama. While the great king, Horus, raises the pillar of Osiris, his followers wage a bloody defence of their lord against those perfidious villains, the henchmen and the warriors, of the crown prince of crime himself. Seth, ever ready to seize the throne, is in the fray. I'm letting my Batman analogy get out of hand here, but you get my point. 
The struggle between Horus and Seth is eternal, and Horus will always defend Osiris. As part of the said festival rituals, this battle was played out by actors pretending to fill the roles. The ritual battle of Pei and Dep, the battle between the followers of Horus and Seth, ended with victory for Horus, as is proper. Order, or Ma'at, defeated Chaos, and as the followers of Seth slunk away defeated, the Jed Pillar of Osiris stood tall, enduring. The arcane rituals were now, as far as we can tell, coming to their close. Moving forward, we come to Phase 4, the final section of the said festival rites, as they are depicted in Kerouf's tomb. In the last phase, we return to the public sphere, as groups of people come together to celebrate the king's rejuvenation. It will involve some ornate and fascinating performances. This will come after the break. In the fourth phase, the rituals of the said festival wound down from their mysterious and arcane peak towards a more general celebration. This included two main events, a great procession of people and animals, and a ritualized dance performed by musicians. As we roll towards the conclusion, we will finish with these two pieces. The first of these public events was called Driving the Cattle and Donkeys Around the Walls. It seems to have been a great procession of the herd animals of the region, going in a perambulation around the outer walls of the Malkata Palace, or perhaps Amunhotep's mortuary temple. The animals, cattle and donkeys, were gathered together by their herders, and in a great braying, snorting herd, they made their way in a circuit around the walls. Odds are that it was slow, dusty and cacophonous, but it was somewhat symbolic. The procession happened four times. Quote, they, the herders and animals, go around the walls four times on this day, the day of the erection of the sacred Jed Pillar. End quote. The herd moves four times around the walls. Mostly it's just donkeys and cows, nothing very exciting to look at. But in one of those beautiful little touches that we see occasionally in Egyptian art, there is one particular cow who gets singled out for a bit of chastising. One cow walking forward is looking back over its shoulder. The caption overhead tells this cow, Do not go in the direction that you are looking. Since he's looking backwards, the caption is really saying, Oi! Eyes forward, follow the crowd. It's a cute little moment, and I love it. This cattle procession was more than a walk. It did have a point. On the one hand, it was a grand display of the country's wealth. Since time immemorial, all the way down to the pre-industrial era, the prosperity of Egypt could be measured by the heads of cattle which it produced. The first kings had made a ceremony of measuring this, a biannual cattle count that took place throughout the land. 1500 years later, the regularity of that practice was gone, but the essence remained. And in an enormous procession, Egyptians under Amunhotep III reenacted the deeds of their ancestors and paraded the country's wealth before its owner, the king. Amunhotep, gazing upon the herds, could satisfy himself. 
the land was prospering, and he was a blessed ruler indeed. The next ritual was equally impressive, but much less messy. It involved music, dances, and a performance. This ritual dance was the capstone of this day. We see it in Kerouf's tomb, and it looks quite elaborate. The dancers come in two flavours, women standing in long gowns, clapping their hands to the rhythm, and women dressed in skull caps, performing a dance with stomping feet and raised hands. They wear long skirts with two layers, and straps which crisscross the chest meeting behind the neck, leaving the breasts bare. The description of this dance is pretty sparse. It simply says, The women were escorted to the king in order to perform the Heb-said rituals in front of the throne. End quote. The dance itself is equally modest, and it doesn't seem like an ecstatic or particularly exciting performance. If anything, it may have been quite slow and formal, which makes sense. The said festival was not like a celebration of Hathor, for example. There was no music, beer, and sexuality coming together in a grand free-for-all. No, this one was much more formal, much more serious. It was a dance for the pharaoh's health, not a party in the name of the sex goddess. Still, it was probably quite a sight to behold. Dozens or hundreds of women clad in their white linen skirts, twirling, stomping their feet, and clapping. Bronze and black skins glimmered with sweat, and the tattoo of drums and the rhythm of clappers, like menat necklaces, kept time throughout it all. The dance and the cattle procession may have gone on at the same time. With the sun now high in the sky, after the lengthy rituals of raising the jed pillar and the battle of pay and dip, the day was in full swing. Pretty soon it would be time for another feast. But here, Kerouf's tomb scenes come to their end. Unfortunately, the tomb of Kerouf was never completed in its decoration, so we don't know how much more was left on the cutting room floor. Certainly, there must have been much more to this festival, perhaps days of celebrations, but simply put, the art does not survive. Kerouf witnessed a great deal, and he participated in many wonderful rituals, but unfortunately, his recounting is incomplete. So, we come to the end of our narrative. With the cattle parade and the dance of women finishing, we must move on towards an overview of the said festival as a whole and also a flashback to the amazing way in which Amunhotep actually prepared for this whole event. The said festival of Amunhotep III was truly an event like you have never seen. Relatively speaking, it was bigger than the World Cup, bigger than the Olympics, bigger than a Michael Jackson concert at the height of his popularity. This was an affair to dwarf any other in Egypt for sheer spectacle, and for the mysteries of its central rituals. One of the most important aspects of the said festival is the concept of duality. The king is repeatedly referred to as Lord of the Two Lands, the Dual King, and many of the rituals are connected with the rites of unifying Egypt. We see the king illuminating two thrones, one for the north and south and he wears two crowns. There is a battle between two gods, and the raising of the Jed Pillar celebrates the division between two states, the state of life and the state of death. It is possible that some of these rituals, in particular the ones involving the thrones and the crowns, were actually performed twice, once for Upper Egypt, once for Lower. 
So duality, a state of two existences, is celebrated frequently throughout the festival. There is also an important element of mystery going on here. And I don't just mean stuff we don't know yet, I mean stuff we are not allowed to know. The idea of mystery and arcana seems to be a big part of the said festival. This is actually captured in the artistic scenes, where a lot is shown but very little is explained. There are also events, like donning the said robes, which are referenced but never shown. Basically, there are some big gaps. Gaps that seem to be there on purpose. It often appears that the Egyptians were carefully curating what elements of the said festival could and could not be depicted in art. This kind of meticulous and specific editing leaves us a very fragmented picture. We have the edges of our jigsaw puzzle and some of the details, but still there are plenty of bits that simply do not appear. Given how vast the paintings of Kerouf already are, we have to conclude that this fragmented image is partly how the Egyptians themselves wanted it. Some things are simply not for common eyes. These deeper meanings, duality and mystery, are at the heart of the said festival, and we can catch a glimpse of them by what is and what isn't included. But for all of that, there is still a lot that we simply do not know. Some of this is academic, like the exact meaning of different religious symbols or the references that they're making, but some of it is also quite fundamental. For example, we're not actually sure what the name said festival means. The key word is said a word that is never translated because we haven't cracked its meaning fully. Was said a reference to the said robe, or was it something more secret and symbolic? This spills over into the larger meaning of the festival. If the said robe is related to priesthood, was the king renewing his authority as a high priest? Or was it to do with his authority as a monarch, with the robe simply representing the pharaoh in particular? Without an answer to that question, we're actually missing a big part of the overall symbolism. Then there are the questions about specific events and rituals. What activities are left out of the record? What are we not shown? It's clear that some events took place behind closed doors. So what was going on in there? Only a privileged few got to witness those rituals, and their depictions, if they were ever made, have not survived. So what are we missing? Finally, I personally want to know more about what kind of relationships were being expressed in this festival. The art of ruling is not one way, a ruler takes and a ruler gives. Was this playing out in the said festival as well? I want to understand how the pharaoh and the people that he ruled interacted or gave to one another during this performance. There are traces of it under Amunhotep III. We see the king giving offerings to the gods and rewarding his officials with golden honours. We also see the people giving to the king himself, either in praise or in performance. But what kind of relationship is being established here? Is there reciprocity? Simply put, it's not clear. Not yet. I need to do a lot more research into the arcana and symbolism of this particular festival. Fortunately, Amunhotep III's festival is the second of three great depictions. The next one will appear in just 500 years under the majesty of Usurkon II of Dynasty 22. Perhaps by then we will get a bit more complete picture to explore. 
So this is the Sid Festival of Amunhotep III. A huge affair, it involved thousands of people, and its events ranged from the mundane, like feasts and parades, to the absolutely mysterious. Altogether, it was one of those rare events, a moment steeped in ancient symbolism, but public enough that we are still able to catch a glimpse and untangle some of the knotty elements that it involved. The first jubilee passed in great splendour. It probably wouldn't be a stretch to say that this was the largest party in living memory. An entire generation had elapsed since Amunhotep III took power, and many more had passed since the last said festival was celebrated. So when the party ended, there was probably a colossal mess and a titanic hangover. There would also be some fallout from the king's decisions during this period, but that is a story for another day. We now come to the end of this chapter. The first said festival was a huge success. In the coming years, the king would celebrate two more of these festivals, grand events which celebrated his endurance and the longevity of his reign. We will cover those festivals in time, briefly, but the main event was clearly the first one. So with that, we come to the end of this celebration. All over Thebes, Egyptians were stumbling home, dazed and probably slightly drunk. They had performed, worshipped, eaten and quaffed. Now they had a hangover to deal with, and a king who was ever closer to being a god. On the next episode, we will explore two side events from the year of the said festival. These are peripheral to the celebration, but they took place in the same general period. You see, in regnal year 30, King Amunhotep III performed two important rites. There was one for his eldest daughter, and one for his eldest surviving son. In episode 100b, we will explore raising the children high. Also, the questions and answers for episode 100 will follow immediately after episode 100b. Since this said festival narrative ran so long, I figured it was best to separate the question time into its own episode. That will appear very soon, keep an eye out. In the meantime, stick around after the ad break for an epilogue. We're going to flash back to the start and see how the king's agents prepared the festival itself. Not the food and drink, that was easy. Nope, we're going to see how a group of officials went about researching and preparing the sacred rituals themselves. Remarkably, we have some written evidence for exactly how they did that. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. 
and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. An epilogue. Technically, this next part should have been at the beginning of the episode, but as with most events of this kind, it's better to start with the proceedings and then flash back to how they were organised. I'm not talking about how the food, beer and cattle were gathered together. That was certainly a headache, but it's not what I'm getting at. What I'm talking about is how the rituals themselves were arranged. Specifically, what the pharaoh did to make sure that his said festival was conducted in the proper ancient traditions. Remarkably, we have some evidence for Amunhotep doing this. Far away from Thebes, far from the palace of Malkata, the pyramid fields of the north still stood. If we go to the site of Meidum, we will see a most interesting pyramid. It is a step pyramid, sort of. A step pyramid that is halfway towards being a true pyramid. It has steps inside, but smooth sloping edges. And it is collapsed, giving it a strange two-level effect. The pyramid of Meidum, probably a monument of King Sneferu from Dynasty Four, stands crumbling today. In the time of Amunhotep III, it was a site of great interest. King Sneferu, who lived around 2600 BCE, exerted a strong influence across history. We can see this in a number of graffiti inscriptions written around the pyramid by later visitors. Quote, Regnal year 30, under the majesty of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Rey, the son of Rey, Amunhotep, the ruler of Thebes. May he live forever as beneficent king in this whole land. The scribe, Mai, came to see this very great pyramid of the Horus Sneferu. End quote. Mai, a royal scribe, was sent to Meidum Pyramid, not just to see the sites, he went to inspect the temple which once adjoined the pyramid's northern face. The mortuary temple of Sneferu at Meidum, now a ruin, was once a font of texts and images of the most ancient kingdom. Mai, an agent of the king, may have come to inspect these in preparation for the said festival. We have reason to believe that Amunhotep III, at the start of year 30, ordered his scribes to inspect and document the monuments of past kings. He did this in order to pull as many records as possible of the ancient said rituals. The said festival dated back to the very earliest kings of Egypt, so there was a long legacy of references to pull from, as long as Amunhotep knew where to look. One relic survives today which is very interesting in this context. It is originally from the pre-dynastic period, or perhaps Dynasty I. This object is a palette, a flat stone piece carved with images of ritual and event. This palette depicts a number of men, probably early priests, wearing robes that are a lot like the said robes. This may be a depiction of an early said festival. But what does that have to do with Amunhotep III of Dynasty 18? Well... Flip that palette over, 
and on the reverse you will find an image of none other than Queen T. At some point, Amunhotep's artists went into the archives and gathered together various items of archaic origin. These pre-dynastic and early dynastic objects were chosen for their symbolism, particularly regarding the said festival. When they had a collection, the artists reworked the ancient pieces for their modern needs. So objects more than 1600 years old were now embellished with new images to fit new times. They didn't destroy the old images, merely added to them, and in doing so they forged a link between Egyptians of Dynasty 18 and their most ancient ancestors. How cool is that? You can see an image of this palette on the website. It may not seem like much, but it's got a great story. After all, someone had to find that palette, bring it to the king's attention, design a new edition, and then have it carved. A lot of work went into that small object, and I love that we have a tiny trace of it today. To plan his said festival properly, the king had a quest, to find ancient records and bring them to light. Fortunately, he was not alone in this. Pharaoh was aided by learned scribes, literate priests, and a number of ranking officials who could assist him. One of these was the confidant and wise man, Amunhotep the son of Hapu. We will meet this man in the next episode. Suffice to say, he was a close advisor of the king, and he seems to have served him for almost the entire reign. Apparently, Amunhotep Hapu helped the king organize these events by examining the archives. This wise counsellor claimed responsibility for organising the first said festival. It's a pretty grandiose claim. Could he back it up? Well, maybe he could. In the tomb of Keruef, our man on the scene, he describes the events of the said festival. As he does so, he adds more to the story of ancient research when he says, quote, it was his majesty the king who did this ritual in accordance with the writings of old. End quote. In other words, the said festival was explicitly modelled on old records and documents. These must have come from temple archives, from papyrus scrolls that had been stored, copied and preserved, and from stone pieces like that pallet that survived in the temples of the land. What these records contained, we can only guess. Perhaps they had descriptions of sermons or offering formula, perhaps guides on what events occurred in what order, or maybe a description of the gods and priests who should attend each event. I'm speculating, but wouldn't you love to get your hands on that kind of book? The research and preparations of the first said festival were intense and meticulous. Perhaps this is why we have such a detailed record of the event. After all, Amunhotep III had an unusually traditional-style celebration, and men like Keruef, who participated in it, were proud to display the festival in its full archaic glory. In his tomb, Keruef proclaimed this to all who visited, quote, It was his majesty who did this in accordance with the writings of old. Generations of men since the time of the ancestors had never celebrated said festival rites, but... It was commanded for Ka'em Ma'at, the son of Amun, Amun-Hotep III. End quote. Ah, I love this stuff. The music you hear throughout this episode was generously provided by a range of musicians who have allowed me to use it in the podcast. 
Music by Keith Zizza has been the soundtrack for the podcast since day one. We've also got music by Jeffrey Goodman and Derek and Brandon Feichter. I highly recommend checking their music out. You can find their websites in the episode description, or you can find their music in the History of Egypt podcast playlist on Spotify. The podcast itself is not on Spotify yet, but we do have a musical playlist with all kinds of wonderful songs. I recommend checking the playlist out. You'll find some wonderful tunes and maybe some artists you want to support. Also, the History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and I want to thank everyone who is part of Agora for being a wonderful teammate and being so supportive in our efforts to bring podcasting to the world. If you're enjoying this show, I recommend visiting agorapodcastnetwork.com in order to find a number of other great stories being released by some top quality podcasters. Check the episode description for links. Finally, thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast on its new Patreon website. Your support has been incredibly generous, and I am thankful from the bottom of my heart. Now then, let's wrap this up. Thank you for joining me on this extra special episode. If you made it all the way to the end, congratulations to you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.